Today, we are going to pause our message series on the book of Colossians. So if you were looking forward to getting into Colossians, I'm sorry, you'll have to wait till next week. We're going to pick up our study next week, and we're going to finish chapter 2. Today, I want to talk to you about victory. Last week, we talked about how our enemy is disarmed because of what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. And as a result of that, we have complete salvation, total forgiveness, and absolute victory. We do not have to live by the oppression that comes from this world. Romans chapter 8 verse 37 reminds us that overwhelming victory, not just victory, but overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And nothing can ever separate us from this love. Nothing. We have victory in Jesus. Now let that sink in for a moment. We have victory in Jesus. Victory over our sins, victory over our enemy, victory over our worries, and we will even have victory over our government. It may not look like it right now, but one day every president will bow. Every speaker of the house will use their tongue. Every governor, mayor, senator, and representative will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that the government will rest on His shoulders. That means that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything and everyone. He is the victory. He is sovereign over every government in the world. And one day, the government of the whole world will rest upon His shoulders. And His kingdom will have no end. The Bible also says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, that all authority comes from God, and everyone who is in authority has been placed there by God. So as we step into this political season with Election Day this Tuesday, I want to speak to you on how we as a church body and as Christ followers should respond. And I know some of you may be squirming in your seats right now. You might be thinking to yourself, oh no, he's about to talk about politics. Hearing that word for some of you is like hearing a dirty word. Others of you may think immediately of separation of church and state. Like, we can't talk about that here. Now listen, while I recognize that politics can be a very polarizing subject, there is no subject that is off limits when it comes to the Bible. No subject. One of the main problems with how we as people handle politics is that we tend to take one of two extremes. On one hand, we become so consumed in it, it becomes all that matters. It's all we talk about. And we act like the fate of our nation is on the line with every single vote that is cast. And then on the other, on the other extreme, we become so apathetic that we avoid it or ignore it. It's too messy. It's too corrupt. It's too whatever, fill in the blank. Both of these extremes are incredibly dangerous. So let me begin by saying this. We want to be known as a biblical church, not a political church. Therefore, we will not promote individual candidates or political parties. Because the fact is, if you're reading your Bible, then you will know who to vote for and how to vote. Is the candidate for life or death? Is the candidate for marriage between a man and a woman 
Is the candidate for gender identification as God created them, male and female? These are biblical issues, not political issues. Unfortunately, we've allowed them to become a divisive tactic our enemy uses to divide and conquer. Another reason we will not promote a specific candidate from the pulpit is because man is flesh, and flesh can fail. If I stood up here and promoted a candidate today and gave our church stamp of approval, and then tomorrow that same candidate cheats on his wife or gets a DUI or gets it caught in embezzling money, it would reflect negatively on the church. And listen, I also never want to promote someone or something that creates a stumbling block to hearing the gospel. I am much more interested in this church being a biblical church than I will ever be in this church being a political church. Now, my job as a pastor is to promote Jesus, not a politician, period. So let me ask you this. Who have you campaigned more for, Jesus or a politician? Are you out there in the world making disciples, sharing the love of Jesus, and sharing the gospel? Or are you known more for your political opinions than you are for your faith? People should see the love we have for Jesus more than our political opinions. And people need to see Jesus in you before they can hear Jesus from you. Because right now, people see most Christians as hypocrites. They think we're unloving, unkind, and judgmental. Are we? Are we? Let's prove them wrong. Do we make fun of candidates because they don't share the same political views we do? Do we spend time making jokes and laughing at them? Or do we spend time on our face, desperately praying for them and for our nation? Can you imagine if people in our government had a heart change? If powerful government officials came to the saving grace of Jesus? If they had a Saul to Paul miraculous conversion? We are to pray for our leaders, and we are to pray for our enemies. So when it's time for the political season, what do we do? What do we do? We have to avoid the extremes of being consumed in it or being apathetic towards it. And it's the apathy that I really want to address today. In recent elections, about two out of every five Christians did not vote. And about one out of five eligible Christians are not even registered to vote. We not only have the right, but we have the obligation to speak out on any issue that contradicts the Word of God. And one way we can exercise our right to speak out is by voting for candidates and policies that will draw our city, our state, and our nation closer to the morals and principles of the Bible. We as the church should be influencing the culture rather than the culture influencing the church. So turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. If you don't have your Bible with you and you'd like to borrow one of ours, we've got plenty of them right here on this bookshelf. Feel free to use one of those, or if you'd like to follow along up on the screen, either way is fine. Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke for God to the people of Judah for 40 years. But when he spoke, no one listened. No matter how much he urged and pleaded with the people, nobody moved. He was ignored, rejected, and persecuted. In the eyes of the world, some would say he was a failure. 
But in the eyes of God, Jeremiah is one of the most successful people in all of history. Success in the eyes of God is not measured by the results the world looks for. With God, it's all about obedience and faithfulness. No matter the cost, Jeremiah courageously and faithfully declared the word of God and was obedient to the calling God had for his life. In chapter 29, Jeremiah wrote a letter to all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then we pick up here in verse 4 of chapter 29 in the book of Jeremiah. This is what the letter said. It says, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And verse 7. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Our culture today, unfortunately, looks much like Babylon did in its day. It was a society that rejected the one true God and worshipped other gods. It was a perverse culture where sexual immorality was widespread. Unfortunately, our current culture resembles a modern-day Babylon. But as Christians, we know that this world is not our home. The Bible says we are citizens of heaven. So just like the people taken from Jerusalem and exiled to Babylon, you and I are exiled here. And as we go about living our lives and building our homes and raising our families, we must work for the peace and prosperity for the community where we live. And we are to pray for the welfare of our community because its welfare will determine our welfare. This means we should be involved in promoting and supporting and defending the welfare of our community. God did not place us here simply to isolate ourselves and not participate in the welfare of the communities we live in. We're not here for this just to be a social club. No. To choose not to participate is to choose to surrender. And as a child of God, surrender is not a strategy. Rest assured, if we choose not to participate in the welfare of our community, someone else will. And that someone else could very easily be propped up by our enemy. And as nice as it sounds... We are not one nation under God. You hear that a lot. One nation under God. That's not what we are. The fact is, we are a very divided nation, corrupted by pride, greed, power, sexual immorality, and the God of this world. The Bible refers to Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, as the God of this world. That's God with a little g. And in John chapter 12, verse 31, Satan is also called the ruler of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he is referred to as the commander of the powers in the unseen world, the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So Satan is the predominant influence in the world today. He may be the God of this world. That's God with a little g. But God talking about God with a big G, is the God of the universe, and he will have the victory. And we know from Scripture Satan has no authority over us as children of God because Jesus has already won the victory. 
He paid for our victory with his very own blood, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. We may not be one nation under God, but we as remnant believers will be one church under God. And surrender is not our strategy. When Joshua took over as the leader of the Israelites from Moses, God told him to be strong and courageous. You and I need to be strong and courageous. And that's not in our strength. That's in God's strength. When David was a young shepherd boy, he faced off against an enemy in Goliath who towered over him in every way. Yet as David stood there, prepared to battle against Goliath, Goliath mocked him. He mocked him. And David answered him this way. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. In the name of Jesus, you and I have that kind of authority. We have that kind of power because Jesus is our victory. But why is it we often choose not to wield this power or walk in victory? Dr. Martin Luther King said this, There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. You see, thermometers only tell you the temperature. Thermostats actually regulate the temperature. So we as the church should be helping to influence and regulate the moral, ethical, and spiritual temperature of the culture we live in. Now, Michael Brown, who's the author of The Political Seduction of the Church, he said this, If we abandon politics entirely, we cease to be a moral witness. We cease to speak truth to power. We cease to plead for justice for the oppressed and downtrodden. We cease to stand against governmental tyranny. We cease to hold our leaders accountable. We cease to advocate for freedom of religion, speech, and conscience. And we cease to stand up for the rights of the least of these. We, as the body of Christ, cannot afford to sit idly by and watch the tyranny of evil continue to plague our cities, our states, and our nation. No. Surrender is not a strategy. Do you know what makes a great nation? Do you know what makes a great nation? Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 says, It's godliness that makes a great nation. Godliness. It's not government. Government is not our Savior. Jesus is. And what did Jesus call us to do? In Matthew chapter 5, he calls us to be salt and light. In Jesus' day, salt was a preservative. Now, it couldn't ever prevent the decay of meat, but it certainly could delay that decay. And as Christians, we should preserve the spiritual, moral, and ethical fabric of our culture right where God has placed us. But salt doesn't do any good in preserving meat unless it first gets out of the salt shaker. We've got to get out of the salt shaker. You and I need to be salt wherever God has placed us. And not only does salt preserve, it also adds flavor. Are you adding flavor to people's lives by the words you use or by the actions you display? Also, we are to be light in this dark world. Jesus said, who lights a lamp and then places it under a bowl? No, a lamp is put on a stand so it can give light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, you and I should let our good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone would praise our Heavenly Father. Not so they'd praise you and me. No, so they would praise our Heavenly Father because all glory goes to God the Father. So you and I need to be salt and light. We should be speaking life into our decaying culture by taking a stand for Jesus. We can't do that if we're not involved in the welfare of the communities we live in. Because the welfare of the community will determine our welfare. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 9. We're going to look at that for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 9. Verse 1, once again a message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, give your people this message. When I bring an army against a country, the people of that land choose one of their own to be a watchman. When the watchman sees the enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. Then if those who hear the alarm refuse to take action, it is their own fault if they die. They heard the alarm but ignored it, so the responsibility is theirs. If they had listened to the warning... They could have saved their lives. But if the watchman sees the enemy cunning and doesn't sound the alarm to warn the people, he is responsible for their captivity. They will die in their sins. But I will hold the watchman responsible for their deaths. Now, son of man, I am making you a watchman for the people of Israel. Therefore, listen to what I say and warn them for me. If I announce that some wicked people are sure to die and you fail to tell them to change their ways, then they will die in their sins, and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. But if you warn them to repent and they don't repent, they will die in their sins, but you will have saved yourself. So here in this scripture, God gives specific instructions to Ezekiel that he was the watchman for the house of Israel, meaning he was to watch and to warn the people. And so how does that apply today? What is the post that you and I as Christ followers should be watchmen for? Probably the most practical and direct application is the church pulpit. Preachers are to study and listen to the word of God and then proclaim it. They should never be silenced or swayed by political correctness, public opinion, or fear of offending someone. No, their only concern should be over the Lord who gave them the message to deliver. So they hear the message, obey the message, and then proclaim the message with boldness. The pulpit is just one post. The family is another post. Fathers and mothers must be watchmen for their families. They also should study the word of God. They hear its message, obey its message, and then proclaim that message to their children and their families. The workplace is another post for us to be watchmen for. We spend a great deal of time where we work. As Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ, which means we are representatives of God to share the truth of the gospel. And we do that by being salt and light. As watchmen in the workplace, we must be one who hears the truth, obeys the truth, and proclaims the truth. The pulpit, the family, the workplace are posts for us to be watchmen. A fourth post is our community, which we've been talking about. And then there is also one more. We are to be watchmen at our post of the voting booth, 
We have the freedom to participate in setting the direction of our nation, our state, and our local community. Several of you have asked me about a voter's guide. This is your voter's guide right here. This, the word of God. Read it, study it, obey it, and proclaim it. His word is all you need. You want to know what to vote for? Then know your Bible. Surrender is not a strategy. So I encourage you to participate in this Tuesday's election. As citizens of heaven in exile in this foreign land, we are to work for the peace and prosperity of the community that we live in. And we are to pray for our community because its welfare will determine our welfare. Now when you die, it won't matter who your president was, but it will matter who your God is. And there's only one God who can give you victory. And his name is Jesus Christ, the name above every name. Do you know him? Do you know him? Now let's stand and worship the Lord together. We're going to sing this song together. And then when this song finishes, we're all going to grab hands and we're going to pray. We're going to pray for our city. We're going to pray for our state. We're going to pray for this nation. We're going to pray for our leaders. We're going to pray for this church. Amen? Let's stand and sing.
were buried in the ground, but the grave could not contain. 